What do you think? I think we're dead meat. Real dead meat. You're dead meat! Go ahead and laugh, you guys. If I ever find a little bastard of business, you're dead meat. Welcome to the Dead Meat Podcast, an extension of the YouTube channel Dead Meat. I'm James. I'm Chelsea, and we're a boyfriend and girlfriend, and we like to get scared together. You may be, let's see if this is the day this comes out, you might be wondering, what what is this? This isn't a kill count. It's not a kill count. <laughs> nope. So it's the first time that we're doing the podcast to be the same movie as the kill count. We haven't done this before, so this is kind of an experiment, I guess. Mostly because you're, so you're doing Texas Chainsaw, the series... Yes, if you're watching this when this comes out, then the kill count for Texas Chainsaw is out tomorrow, Friday. Yeah, and I wanted to get in on it because Texas Chainsaw is my favorite horror movie. I I adore it. I think it's perfect. And I wanted to, to be able to, one, talk about it, too, and also, two, you wanted to be able to go on more of a deep dive of this movie yeah because when you watch this movie there are so many different ways to read it from its situation uh uh historically with uh vietnam going on to just you know down to like the livestock and the way meat is processed like that's a whole reading in and of itself i can't get into that in a kill count kill count is there for like I, I get my jokes in. I get some behind-the-scenes stuff in. So. Yeah, that we won't be talking about, really. You know, the making of it, we're not going to be yeah. talking about that at all. This is going to be a a deep dive into the, the meaning of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the subtext, the what, it, what it's really about stuff. Yeah. Because this movie's really really layered and it's it's done so on purpose it's a layered script i think i think just because it's written so well it seems very simple on its surface Mm -hmm. it really really does and i think maybe people who who look at analysis of it and think it's maybe a little a little too much Maybe you're thinking, what is there to analyze here i'm just reading too much into it because it's my favorite horror but there's so much scholarly work about this movie to the point that this took me so long to research. I had to push the podcast two days. Yeah. Because I was doing so much reading and I'll I'll kind of shout out my sources as we're going along. There's one cat hair just right. It keeps hitting my nose. <laughs> it's very irritating. But yeah, you want to just jump in? Let's Got a lot do to it. cover. Let's cover this yeah, yeah. beast. Well, I want to talk about First, the the 1970s as kind of a golden age of horror. In my opinion, it it is. I, I wouldn't say it's it's objectively the best, but I would say it's a golden age of horror. Sure, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on. It's my it's my favorite time period. It's this is when horror starts to get really violent, really graphic. It's gritty and gross and. It's not fantastical anymore. I think before this, horror is is still a bit more fantasy. But then in the 70s, you get this and, and Last House on the left and stuff like it, where it feels like you're watching something you shouldn't be watching. This is even, to, to play that up more so, Texas Chainsaw says it's based on a true story. So you get the feeling you're maybe watching a documentary or something. And... 
The other interesting thing about Texas Chainsaw is, is yeah, it's associated with this era that's super gory and graphic, but this movie, people misremember it as being so much gorier than it actually is. You don't see that much blood. There's hardly anything. There's hardly man. everything is is implied, and we're gonna make a lot of parallels between this and Psycho. One, because they're based off the same source material, and two, their famous scene, Psycho, is is because of the way it's edited and staged. People came away from that thinking, oh my god, I just saw something so incredibly violent, but you don't really see anything. And that's the same with this. It's all cuts and editing and framing and sound design. And you just kind of imagine... Not to say that it's not very disturbing. I think the the horror of this movie, and this movie is still truly scary. We just watched it, and we watched it with a bunch of friends who'd never seen it before, and everyone came away from that feeling like, cool, I'm going to go shower now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was great. It was great, yeah. If you, if you want to you know, traumatize your friends. Texas Chainsaw is like a good, good Definitely. choice. Because you technically didn't even show them anything that fucked up. <laughs> they imagined it. <laughs> yeah, everything about it's gross. And then on top of it, it it offers you zero catharsis. The end of this is not a happy ending, I don't think. Like, sure, our, our final girl, our main character, Sally, gets away but does she really? Yeah, she's looking pretty messed up there psychologically at the end. Yeah, yeah. So the, this chaos and, and the, the grossness of this movie makes sense coming out of the 70s because the 70s in both the U.S. and around the world, is it's just pure chaos. It's We're coming out of the late 1960s where there's a giant like upheaval in general, just, just you know socially, culturally. And the 70s in that time must have really felt like an apocalypse in action or yeah. feeling like some, like the world I think truly felt like it was going to end because it just seemed like there was no shortage of, of terrible news. And that's, you know, because we have the worst economy worldwide since the great depression, we're, we're coming off the 1950s where everything's awesome. And those are the good old days. We, I mean, everything's yes. Yes. <laughs> eco economically. Yeah. Everything is pretty great. <laughs> Not so much in other respects, but we have our our post-World War II economy, so many jobs, everything is just squeaky clean on the surface. Which again, we've said before, it's because the rest of the world was still fucked up, man. That's right. Yeah, Europe especially is just fucked. So. Pretty easy to be a economic powerhouse when your country's the only one left intact <laughs> yeah. after a world war. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So then we've got we're, we get the 70s where we have this giant economic crash and crime in major cities is at an all time high, which that's why you get movies like Death Wish. We just talked about Death Wish, where it's this kind of wish fulfillment vigilante movie where it's a guy just killing criminals in the big city. And then we got real life Son of Sam is in 1976 and he's a serial murderer who shot a bunch of people in New York City. And this, so it's it's news, like, it's this constant barrage of news like that that's just making people go nuts. It's yeah. scary. And we're, we're getting to the end of the Vietnam War. Most Americans now are finally opposed to it. And yeah, because they've been seeing it on their TVs. Exactly. We have TV. Nixon promises to end the war, but instead bombs Cambodia. 
Thanks, Henry Kissinger. By the way, I, I just kept thinking about this while I was researching that Henry Kissinger is still alive, mm-hmm. and Toby Hooper's not. Nope. How old is Kissinger? He's like ninety-three. He's definitely in his nineties. Something 90s. like that. Oh yeah. Yeah, he's nope. in that that Theranos documentary that HBO did. If you want some, he's. Oh, okay. I didn't realize he was kind of a, a big player in that company, but I just imagine he has his fingers in everything. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Nobel Peace Prize winner, Henry Kissinger. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So the, basically the shine of America's worn off in the <laughs> 70s. We've got our, our nasty underbelly is kind of exposed. And so appropriately, Toby Hooper and Kim Henkel's Texas in this is, is a wasteland. It's like this a post-apocalyptic wasteland with, with dying cows and, and abandoned gas stations, dug up graves and decaying mansions and then obviously our farmhouse full of cannibals but yeah like I was saying before this this movie's been interpreted over and over and over again by academics and I like this quote a lot by John Towson who wrote subversive horror cinema if you want to read it Texas Chainsaw has been variously interpreted by academics as an inverted fairy tale, an example of apocalyptic art, an allegory of Vietnam, and a metaphor for rampant consumerism and economic meltdown in a late capitalist society. That the film yields to such a variety of interpretations, which are by no means contradictory readings, speaks to the density of its text. So yeah, this movie has been analyzed over and over and over again, and there's so many different readings of this film and I'm I'm going to try and give my one pretty cohesive reading I think from these sources that I've used I've put together one I think take on it that makes all these theories make sense. Ooh, is this the Chelsea Rebecca unified theory of Texas Chainsaw oh, Massacre? Oh man, we can call it that if we want to. <laughs> <laughs> but you might think I I didn't, you know, uh explore something as deeply as you would have wanted to or you have a totally different take on it and that's valid because this movie it's there's so many different takes on it, which is why I love it. All right, so let's get into it. So we I addressed this earlier really briefly, but yeah, the source material that Hitchcock and Hooper are both drawing on, and I'm sure many of you know this as horror fans, is Ed Gein, mm-hmm. specifically the novel Psycho by Robert Block, which is based off of the loosely off the Ed Gein murders. And if you don't know Ed Gein, if you're a horror fan, but not a true crime fan, those are different things. Yeah. (laughs) Ed Gein was a murderer from Wisconsin, not a serial killer, a murderer. That's right. He only killed two people? Yes. Only. Yeah, right. Two more than most of us. Right, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, He, he, yeah, killed two people and he also exhumed bodies and made arts and crafts with the the skin and bones. Sound familiar? Right. So those crimes are basically a before and after for American culture because this is I think that was in the 50s and social psychologists don't know what to do with it. (laughs) And there's just an abundance of studies that pop up at this time because researchers are scrambling to understand how this could have happened. And so we get all these studies about repression in middle America with just, there's some attempt to explain how this could have happened. And people are struggling to reconcile with the idea of this crime and the idea that this deviance could have occurred in our America, especially the wholesome, yeah, like Midwest. serene countryside. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And so he he prompts further research into small town life and crime. And we all are kind of culturally reconciling with the fact that 
he's he's possibly a symptom of a bigger disease in America, right? So he even, and I'm going to talk about this on our next episode, he even affects the way our culture depicts transgender non-conforming people, which I didn't know. Um, but when you think about it, it makes perfect sense because there's so many takes on that crime too, which we'll get more into next week. He's also at kind of a before and after for the depiction of transgender people in pop culture. Um, another influence on Texas Chainsaw Massacre is Dean Coral and his associate Elmer Wayne Henley. These two are some of the scariest serial killers that I I'd never heard of before I got into true crime, but they are, are like, they're all, it, it's truly a nightmare. They kidnapped and murdered, I think like almost 30 teenage Jesus. boys in the early seventies. And these two, especially Dean Coral have lives that are completely at odds with their true selves like Dean Coral and his family owned and operated a candy factory they gave away candy to the local kids and by the way these murders happened in Texas oh. and I guess in interviews Toby Hooper has said that they were also inspired by these crimes because it's the idea of this disparity in American values and our public America versus our private America and they uh, Hooper and Henkel describe it as kind of a quote-unquote moral schizophrenia, which they see as this this wave or maybe even a disease that's sweeping the country and even affecting people, like up to President Nixon. Everyone, it's just this crazy, overwhelming thing that's affecting all of us culturally. In what way? Like, especially when you say affecting President Nixon, do you mean like outwardly he's moral majority uh, real like law and order and then privately it's exposed that oh he's actually a crook that yeah 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 I, I yeah exactly and specifically I I have this a bit later because I want to talk about him and Drayton Sawyer which I think is kind of fun theory Nixon but, and Drayton Sawyer uh-huh all right but the idea <laughs> of Nixon saying you know peace is at hand and then he bombs northern Vietnam on Christmas. Okay. Right. Is that Drayton telling Sally that he, everything's okay? And then kind he, of. And <laughs> goes and gets the broomstick? A little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Sally's Cambodia? I don't I don't know if the metaphor goes that far. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's that it's that it's that idea of outer projection versus what's going on inside right because outwardly Nixon wants to be this great peacekeeper and be seen by the history books as someone who ends the war and is keeping peace but then internally he knows that this war is going to make it easier for him to deal with China and Russia right it's going to make it easier for him to negotiate so he's got these two opposing forces going on so it is a, a a moral schizophrenia is how they phrase it. Got it. Yeah. So, oh, uh, you want to read this quote from Toby Hooper? Sure. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a play about morality in a strange way and family values. It was all bubbling up at once out of the times and out of Watergate. Once again, I underline that we found out as naive students that they don't always tell you the truth. So it's a film about a bad day for everyone. Leatherface, everyone. Yeah, Leatherface <laughs> has a bad day in this movie. <laughs> yeah, does. Leatherface is... Awful, no good, very bad day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a really lengthy writing process for this film. I don't know if you talk about the writing process. I at don't. On the kill count. All right. So I, I guess the first approach they come up with together is this idea of a modern day fairy tale. It's weird that this keeps coming up in our film analyses. Yeah. Um, check out our Us review. Yeah. And Kim Henkel says, if you 
Do you want to read the? You oh, wanted to read all the quotes. I, I do want to read job. all the quotes. <laughs> Only instead of being lured to a gingerbread cottage with gumdrops, it was a little more sinister. Right. So this is something that it's the simple plot, the simple fairy tale type plot. Something that Christopher Sherritt, who he's a professor of film studies, and he wrote a very like a key essay about Texas Chainsaw Massacre that I have I have listed in the description. It's the idea of apocalypse in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He refers to it as a Hansel and Gretel type story, and he also kind of compares the dinner scene to the Mad Tea Party, Ooh. right? <laughs> and these it's these are story elements that we're familiar with, and because they're so familiar and we associate them with childhood and even innocence it's they're really evocative and that's why this movie doesn't need to lean so hard on dialogue because the plot is so simple the second half of the movie especially there's not a ton of dialogue it's mostly screaming right yeah and this movie on its surface is not a cerebral heady movie that's difficult to understand and that's by design Mm. yeah so it, it is worth noting, too, that Hansel and Gretel does feature kidnapping, imprisonment, and attempted cannibalism. <laughs> <laughs> so beyond our association with, with folk tales and fairy tales with childhood, what are those stories meant to do if not kind of expose the or, or discuss the dark underbelly of human nature? They, they're cautionary tales for kids and they emphasize social codes and the proper order of civilization right they're life lessons and so this this leads nicely into talking about this concept of repression and we're gonna go like full academia here but i'm gonna make it fun (laughs) um which draws from freudian theory yeah Yeah, we're yeah he came up we're we're talking about freud (laughs) so it's gonna start you might think it's it's sounding a little out there and I'm going to be throwing around patriarchy and capitalism and oppression. You might, you might check out and think I'm just making word salad, right? Like it's just (laughs) academia word salad, but Robin Woods, um, and he, he also is a film scholar and professor and his writing on repression and horror films specifically is so crucial to horror study. If you take a class on horror films at all in college, you will talk about Robin Wood, and he lays such a groundwork for why Texas Chainsaw Massacre is just a genius movie. He thinks it's an artistic accomplishment and a mass like he he thinks it's it's so much deeper than what people think it is. And he he I think he's a figure responsible for um, horror being taken a little more seriously in academia. So he's cool. <laughs> so okay, here we go. So basic repression. Okay. This is unavoidable, and that's what separates us from animals, right? Like, we can we can delay gratification. We can consider other people's feelings. It's the stuff that makes us It's like, I want to punch you in the face, but I won't. Right. Okay. Yeah, because you, you can consider my feelings. Yeah. The, right. Oh, that that was a informal you. Yeah, I, yeah. I never want to punch you in the no, face. No, no. We're, we're doing a, it's a, a hypothetical <laughs> role play scenario. Yeah. Then we have surplus repression, and this is what's culturally created. So we're we're kind of raised, so we're talking Western culture here. Mm -hmm. We're raised from birth to fall into predetermined roles, and in our our Western culture, we're pressured to be monogamous. We're pressured to be heterosexual. We're pressured to aspire to a higher social class, and we're pressured to buy into patriarchy and capitalism. Like, that's just, that's a fact. That's how... Our society is organized. And by the way, keep in mind, too, this essay is from the 80s. So if any of this sounds a little dated, 
that's from the 80s. Sure. Because, yeah, I, I do think some of that's changed. Exactly. There's I, definitely not as much pressure to be heterosexual now. There, mm-hmm. There's more accepting of yeah. uh, deviations from that. Right. But I would still say overall, mm-hmm. yeah, I think this still this still holds true. So whatever isn't repressed then it has to be dealt with by oppression. Okay. Uh, an ideal member of our society is someone who's sexually monogamous under the construct of a heterosexual union meant for procreation. Sounds Christian. Very Christian. <laughs> and so we, we tamp down those feelings and we can turn those feelings into productive, non-fulfilling work in an office or a factory. I promise this is still an episode about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> It's important to kind of discuss those things, which sound unrelated, but aren't, I promise. Okay. Because it brings us to the idea of the other, which is so, again, crucial to horror theory. And I think once I start talking about the other, you'll see, okay, I get I get where we're going now. <laughs> and the other represents what our dominant ideology that we live in can't deal with. And so it either has to reject it, destroy it, or assimilate it. So it, this isn't something that's necessarily foreign or external either it's something that we all consistently repressed which we project outwards as something that's hated or forbidden and so i think the example he gave was when the puritans came to america because they so repressed sexuality and sex was just evil they project that outwards and they see the native americans as like sexual demons right okay it's this, it's it's projection like classic projection yeah yeah exactly so woman, woman is an other. We fear femininity in our culture. And again, that's why calling a man unmanly is the ultimate insult. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, like throw like a girl. Exactly. The proletariat or working class. And we we have a myth in, in our culture of kind of a dirty, stupid diseased ridden working class and so that's where we get to texas chainsaw massacre because that family is is a monstrous embodiment of the working class and they're the their nightmare version of the working class it's really weird too american culture kind of has this like two-sided treatment of the working class because in in one instance like the public facing instance it holds them up as the shrine of like this is what uh embodies america and Mm -hmm. you know the american dream and like we love the the working class and the middle class and then yet a lot so many policies and uh actual things that go on don't help those people right yeah yeah but I mean, I guess that's probably something that's occurred all throughout history. Oh, yeah. That's you know? just that is, again, this is not I, I'm using it in relationship to American culture because it still holds true and because that's kind of what Texas Chainsaw Massacre is working off of. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's just kind of our culture in general. This is people. <laughs> yeah. Class hierarchy and stuff. A uh, quick run through of some other examples of the other, which you can think of probably a bunch of horror movies that maybe embody these we have other cultures ethnic groups within a culture alternative ideologies uh, 1950s sci-fi is the fear of communism so that's kind of how the other manifests in those movies mm-hmm. sexual deviations and children it's why the creepy kid the idea of the creepy child is so prominent in horror because they're a blank slate right yeah. they're we it's this fear of not being able to control or mold this blank slate 
that we bring into the world and what happens if they just decide to rebel or not fit in or assimilate. That's why they're scary. So Robin Wood claims that this is his foundation for the theory of the American horror film. Do you want to read his quote? Sure. Central to it is the dual concept of the repressed slash the other in the figure of the monster. One might say that the true subject of the horror genre is the struggle for recognition of all that our civilization represses or oppresses. Its reemergence dramatized as in our nightmares as an object of horror, a matter for terror. And the happy ending, when it exists, typically signifying the restoration of repression. Right. So Robin Wood, again, we owe so much to him for legitimizing horror in academia. His work is so, so important, even though when you start getting into it, it seems a little inaccessible. But once it finally clicks and once you kind of get what he's going for, it's really, really interesting. He thinks that horror films are, they're experiencing waking dreams or in horror's case, nightmares. And so beyond our awareness of basic plot character action, which is why I say Texas Chainsaw seems very simple on the surface, we get subversive messaging that can kind of slip through unnoticed. It's amazing how much you can pack into a horror film when it seems very simple on the surface. And because we are kind of familiar even subconsciously with the rules of our culture, like the the ideas of the other and things that we repress. Those all going through those those all ring true and they all they seem familiar because those are those are rules we're all raised with, mm-hmm. right? And because of that shared set of rules, when we go see a horror movie, we're all having a collective nightmare together. And I think that that's such a cool way to think about horror. Because we've all been kind of raised with the same values and this is uh, us experiencing a affront to those. Right, altogether. exactly. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing because uh, people can be watching the movie together and when they're confronted with this breaking of the norms that they've all been raised with, they could have different reactions of like celebrating that or being like legit uncomfortable and scared. Yeah, of he talks a lot about that, right? The idea of watching a horror film and you root for the monster. Yeah. And that's why it feels good to root for the monster because he he thinks and I I kind of agree that the monster is so symbolic of what we repress that it feels good to to watch it be unleashed Just and let it all out. Yeah, it's a catharsis <laughs> in a way and so and that's why few horror monsters are unsympathetic. Like Leatherface is sympathetic. He's a bad guy. He's a murderer. He is a murderer. But there's something about him that is very, I, I find him sympathetic. I mean, when he sits down on that chair after having to kill the <laughs> third teen who's barged into his house and it's just like, oh, oh, come on. Is that when we get that really nice shot of his teeth? Yeah, that's when it's the slow zoom oh, in yeah. on him just licking his teeth. Are, were Gunnar Hansen's teeth like that? No, okay. they were all fake teeth. They look real. I know, same thing with especially, Bill Mosley and Chop Top. Especially like, watching like a Blu-ray transfer of, of this, you know, Sometimes you see, you know, those Blu-ray transfers and it's like, oh, no, that we're not supposed to see it like this. No, but, they're good fake teeth. Yeah. But and even despite how evil the family is, they still evoke really complicated feelings because their dynamic is it's something that's familiar to us. They're a caricature, but they still are this nuclear family that feels weirdly familiar and we're kind of forced to relate to them and even get the sense that they're victims 
too, and they're victims of this idea of capitalism that's kind of chewed them up and spit them out. They're victims of a workforce that doesn't need them anymore. Yeah, and I think that's best exemplified very early on by the hitchhiker, a.k.a. Nubbins, when they're in the van and Franklin's talking about the the air gun that has been developed and is now used to kill cattle. Oh, that's no good. That's no good. Hitchhiker's, no, that's good. You got to do it yourself. Hit him with the hammer. Exactly. And another, I think a thing that's so interestingly, um, I, I didn't pick up on this, but something that's really distinctly human about them is that they don't waste anything, right? They <laughs> uh, they uh, they repurpose everything they eat as furniture or decorations. And that's, that's something we're taught as kids, right? It's like, don't waste <laughs> stuff. 1970s horror, too, something that's really special and, and unique about it is that when we start getting horror framed as purely American. And that's a big part of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, too. It's why it's set in Texas. Texas is like such an Americana state, right? Yeah. And the the family, which is always kind of a, a normality in the monster slash normality dynamic, is now capable of also being the monster in these newer horror films. It's so, not a monster tormenting a family. Right. It's a monstrous family. Right, exactly. <laughs> and and that's, again, that's why Psycho is so important, man. Psycho is such a, a milestone for that because the family in that is the evil. Sure, yeah, Norman and Norma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 70s horror says, fuck old-fashioned family values. The family is, is just as fucked up as everything else. Yeah. It, just because you have a family doesn't mean you're good. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. So before the 70s, evil is just always foreign. It's whether it's ethnically foreign. So think of um, really the purposeful setting and casting and everything of movies like Frankenstein and Dracula, the two Eastern European actors like Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. It's like they're they're yeah, they're foreign men. They're set in Germany and then Transylvania it's this very like that doesn't happen here that happens over in Europe or somewhere right mm-hmm. then even you know we we move through the 50s okay we got movies that are taking place in America but the evil is still foreign, foreign it's invasion. aliens or insect species or something science that's gone not, wrong yeah, yeah, yeah it's not us though. the Americans are the victims right exactly mm-hmm. but now in the 70s it's the monster is finally us so beyond the uh that kind of monster fairy tale folktale allegory hooper i guess suggests adding apocalyptic elements and so we have motifs like the old abandoned house which we also see around this time used to great effect in night of the living dead like a house to to demonstrate apocalypse especially in america where that's that's the ultimate dream right is to own a home exactly that's what we all are are told to aspire to because the house is a status of success Mm -hmm. and making it and Mm -hmm. to see one abandoned is uh to suggest that something went wrong here right and uh hooper also while he's writing this, gets very fascinated by sunspots and solar flares. That which, explains the opening credits. Yes. Okay. Yeah, we're yeah. going to talk. Yes, I'm going to talk so much about the, <laughs> the solar flares and all the crazy, like, astrological shit, which I, I, I always, like, notice but never factor them into my interpretation of the movie. Oh, yeah, because Pam is all about astrology. Yes. Okay, so... I guess at this time, so August 1972, U.S. cable lines are disrupted by a gigantic solar flare in their six days of of record-breaking levels of solar activity. This is like a big thing that happened, apparently. And then I was researching more of this and got so off topic. (laughs) 
I would have talked so much more about solar flares if it wasn't hole? so long. Yeah, I went down a legit Wikipedia hole. <laughs> um, and this is this is Hooper's quote uh, about that element of the script. He he describes it as the the structural puzzle pieces, the way it folds continuously back in on itself, and no matter where you're going, it's the wrong place. Yeah, so it's. He's got this apocalyptic cosmic mindset while he's writing. And so another um, moment in the 70s we should kind of elaborate on because I think it goes nicely with the idea of apocalypse in this movie is the oil crisis in 1973. And in an interview, Hooper describes that moment in history as it seeming like the Western world was going to fall apart. Yeah, that's a big moment. Right. And so what happened was Middle Eastern nations stopped exporting oil to certain countries, including the United States as punishment for our involvement in the Arab-Israeli conflict. Mm -hmm. And this caused huge huge surges in oil prices and gas shortages. Would you fill her up, please? I got no gas. You're out of gas? My tank's empty. There were gas stations in real life with signs that would say, no gasoline. Right? That's not just a convenient plot thing. That's no. just how it was for a little bit in the 70s. And it's interesting because it is like an important plot element here. Mm-hmm. They run out of gas and that screws them over. Yeah. But like, yeah, it's based in yeah. truth. That wasn't just for fun. It's not just a, a joke or written in there for fun. That's just what was going on at mm-hmm. the time. That wouldn't have been a surprise to them. You know, they should have They should have planned <laughs> <laughs> And we also have the end of the peace love movement of the late 60s. We've got the Manson family, I feel like, is cited as a big, like, that's a marker for the end of the 60s. They're they're the evil underbelly of peaceful communal hippie culture and the deaths at Altamont, too. And Altamont was, it was the same year, I think it was both 69, Altamont and Woodstock. And Woodstock is the, obviously, we all know Woodstock. It's the famous music festival. It all went great. And then we 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 have Altamont, which is another music festival where uh, the Hell's Angels are hired to be security, and a bunch of people died. Someone got stabbed during a Rolling Stones set. You can watch a documentary about it called "Gimme Shelter." It's very good. But yep, Altamont is another. Uh, people consider that as another moment where the '60s ended. The late '60s, leading into the '70s, is one of America's most chaotic times, and it's understandable that this would have been overwhelming and. It could have maybe felt like there was something bigger going on or something cosmic because it was just so crazy. Right? Yeah, so constant. Yeah. And you get, I, I love that, like, you know, the final couple seasons of Mad Men, you, you see this reflected. Mm, yeah. Just, like, the Mad chaos. Men does a good job at, it, at showing that. Yeah, just showing how the characters are reacting to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, even people who are kind of isolated from it. Yeah, like them. Betty. Yeah. Betty Draper. And even Dom, like, you know, he's an upper mm-hmm. class, like, rich man but he still is affected by it i mean that's why the opening credits are the man falling from the the skyscraper it's yeah we get that sense in this movie too the opening with the radio announcer he's talking about corpses dug up in the cemetery and news of other disasters like a discovery of a body with genitals missing terrorism oil spills arson and so it's this bigger picture of like this evil time yeah the world falling apart yeah and then we get the images of the sun in the beginning and the the astrology book the condition of retrogradation is contrary or inharmonious to the regular direction of actual movement in the zodiac and is in that respect evil you have these visual parallels between the sun and the moon and these macro zoom images of sally's eyes which when we watched it with our friends that was imagery that really stuck out because it's so 
but bad cinematography is nuts. It's so close. It's so I close. It's, it's incredible. Right. But so when you think about it, it's like the sun and someone's eyeball are these two structures that from far away aren't, you know, the sun looks pretty chill from far away <laughs> and someone's eyeballs an eyeball, but then you get up close and it's just chaos and gross and you see all of her veins. Yeah. It's so it's nasty. Intense. Yeah. So it's, it's, the age of Aquarius is kind of ending, you know, in hair. He's thinking about the age of Aquarius. Mm. I love hair. <laughs> <laughs> but then it's the age of Saturn is here. That's what Pam was talking about yeah, in the retrograde. Van. Yeah. So that's bringing <laughs> a loss of control and evil. And so it's, it's our victims in this movie are losing control of their fates. And so are the monsters too. They seem to completely lack control mentally and physically. I mean, Leatherface even is running around. He's skidding all over the place with his chainsaw. He's so big and he's like a little cartoon character, but there's just total <laughs> laugh, lack of control. And I think the astrology and the, the sun imagery in the beginning really set that up as some kind of bigger thing, making everything just fall apart. Mm. Right. We would, Witness the downward spiral of everyone in this film towards barbarism, even unknowingly, like at the very beginning, almost our protagonists are buying and eating meat that they get at the gas station. And so unknowingly, they've become cannibals and... Uh, yeah, Franklin has it in his mouth for a very long time. He does. It looks nasty. Sucking on that. that... He's chomping on it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the ease during the rest of this film, which everyone interacts with this world also kind of... There's something so off-putting about it, and it kind of signals this this weird acceptance of this apocalypse. Because think about when they go visit the old homestead, the Hardesty home where their grandpa lived. That house is so fucking creepy, and yeah. it's, and they're just no one reacts to it. They're just like it's it's grandpa's old house, yeah, and this is my old room. Yeah, and it's disgusting. The only time anyone notices anything weird is when I think it's um. Oh, I forget all their names. Kirk sees some spiders. That's it. Yeah, the nest of spiders. Which words. is weird. I hate that Gross part. shot. It's so gross. Franklin also notices the bones on the porch. He and does. He's a little unnerved by that. Yes, but the willingness to which they just they just run in there. Mm -hmm. And same thing when uh, Kirk and Pam just hear the, the engine running and are like, let's just go to this farmhouse and yeah. check it out. They all are just willing to go along with whatever. And it's so weird. <laughs> The world of this movie doesn't allow for change or control when you think about it. And that's why the ending itself is kind of abrupt. And I think to a lot of people it even feels anticlimactic, right? It is very just kind of It just kind of happens. Mm -hmm. And there's not a sense of closure to this movie. And, and we're denied a feeling of a proper ending. And we get the idea that the world of this movie is just going to return back to this crisis. And again, it's this idea of an evil age like just because our one character gets away that doesn't mean the evil of this time is over right mm -hmm. yeah it's bigger than the characters of this movie the idea of evil in this movie too depends crucially on cannibalism that's what the whole movie's about that's what they're all about and we always that's something we've we've always seen as evil and cannibalism it's like, is like cannibalism one of the biggest no-nos yes yes it's so it's so interesting how like worldwide too like just like all world cultures i think that that is the most accepted taboo which is interesting because we eat meat right we eat every other animal and yet and i'm not saying that this is wrong but when it comes to eating one of our own that is the ultimate 
wrong. And it's it's so fascinating that that's like all humans have felt that way. Yeah. It's so interesting. Right. So we we kind of just as people, it's like our weird monkey brains. We kind of we understand that society's not going to resort to cannibalism unless it's the end time. Oh, like it's it's a last resort to do that. Yeah. And so Sally's torture in this movie is almost ritualistic and it kind of you get the idea of the cannibalism in this movie being some kind of apocalyptic ritual. It's so staged. She's sitting there for dinner on, almost on a throne, right? <laughs> with with all the bones on it and stuff. And yeah. she's kind of a scapegoat too. She's like an outlet for their shared aggression. And it made me think of that short story, The Lottery. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where uh, uh, town draws numbers and the person who draws the wrong number gets stoned to death. Yeah. It's just, yeah, like an outlet. It's, it's an kind of like The Purge. Yeah. it's a, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's an outlet. And so in that way, Hooper doesn't really focus on what's done to Sally, which ends up not being a ton anyway. She but gets her finger cut open and yeah. a couple of hits to the back of the head. Yeah. I think that's it. But he focuses on her terror and the the emotional projection that the cannibals are putting onto her. And oh, that's what's God. so disturbing. Yeah. A hitchhiker just mocking her so much. Yeah. So the author of this piece about apocalypse and Texas Chainsaw, Christopher Sherrod, he kind of says it's, it's extreme to argue that Hooper's doing this all consciously, you know, kind of reworking this idea of cannibalistic ritual. Cause it's getting into some super academic shit. Like his essay is very academic, but it's, it's the idea of, subconscious cultural ideas that make our, our make their way into things that we create mm-hmm. right not you know not even intentionally but he thinks it's interesting to note and important to note because also the 70s we get kind of this um increased occurrence of cannibalism movies too if you look at what movies came out during that decade because it's hills have eyes and living dead cannibal holocaust is at the end of the 70s that's like 1980 but yeah it's just interesting to kind of note and yeah i think it's also important to note maybe it's important but it's interesting at least to know that toby hooper was around 30 when he made this movie and he uh is coming from the university of austin texas or the university of texas austin uh i i he might have dropped out of college but he did have some college education in some film studies so uh it's definitely fair to say that all this was or at least some of it was intentional because he's not like some 22 year old dude who's like goofing around with his friends. Yeah. Just making like, this is a 30 year old man making this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's, he, he'll have been old enough to, you know, form opinions and kind of matured a bit. Mm -hmm. It's not just, uh, Oh, it'd be really cool if like we had these cannibals eat this woman. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This lack of catharsis too at the end and why this, this movie I think so disturbs people when they watch it is there's so much circularity in this movie and this feeling of things not ending or things being resolved. Sally goes from the gas station to the house to the gas station to the house Mm -hmm. and there's shots, all these shots of windmills and someone goes missing and okay, we'll go look for him. And then someone else goes missing and we'll go look for him. And 
there's this implication that the cannibals too have done this over and over and over again. The house is already covered in bones. All and the cars stuff. that they have out front. Yeah. Where did those come from? It is like this endless nightmare cycle, right? I think that the biggest indication of a lack of closure here for me is that fucking semi truck driver. <laughs> no. Who just, where did he go? It was amazing doing this research. No one talks about that no guy. No one ever brings it up. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck happened to that guy? I know. I want to know what happened to him. <laughs> but yeah, like we've already mentioned it, but that last shot, Sally escapes, but it doesn't feel good. She's laughing crazily and we kind of get the sense that this drama is not it's not going to resolve so easily fun little real life uh imitating art there is actually they shot that scene and they shot it at the end of and and filming this movie was hell a nightmare it yeah, was it hell terrible especially that dinner scene was like a 26 hour shoot straight so they filmed that last scene and then uh uh Marilyn Mar Burns. Then Marilyn Burns goes home and she like cleans herself and she's done. And they call her and they're like, we didn't get it. That <gasps> last shot. They had to come back. She had to come back and refilm that final escape scene in the back of the truck. So when she's laughing, she was like, that was real. That was me being like, I'm, I'm done. God, I'm done. That's perfect. Yeah. Wow. Oh, no. Yep. I know that feeling. Yeah. We, <laughs> we didn't get it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh, boy. Even the mask is kind of a symbol of this social breakdown. It's this this barrier between open human interactions and the fact that it's human skin reminds us constantly of death and yeah. decay. It's like and this facade of human. Yeah. Like, it, it's a human face, but it's not his yeah. human face. It's... You know, right. ties back into that duality we talked about. Yeah, and keeping Grandpa around. Like, he's still alive, but he's essentially a corpse. And <laughs> yeah. he's kind of this callback to the good old days, right? And we don't learn. We still give him the sledge, even though we can't fucking do it. Yeah, <laughs> he's they, impotent. Yeah, He was so good. He, he was, was the best so, at killing. Yeah, maybe, maybe 50 years ago, sure. <laughs> he's apparently supposed to be 124. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> What's his secret? <laughs> uh, his all uh, liquid diet, oh. as they say in the second movie. Yeah, family family of Draculas. That's what uh, Franklin says, right? Oh, does he? Mm -hmm. well, I think we just picked up Dracula. My family's always been in me. The whole family of Draculas. The cannibalism, too, and this repetition, this this pattern of, of circles and repetition. I'm starting to sound like Rust Cole. <laughs> but, like, is a real true circle. detective here it uh it kind of reminds us of what the family's built on and at the same time what america's built on too right our our country our civilizing process was built on the blood bone and skin of other people and that's recent history too that's like that's ingrained in our country's dna as we are we were built on violence and we can't build a foundation of a civilization with murder and just expect that to fade away right like we're always gonna keep coming back to that that's always gonna surface mm -hmm. so yeah, it seems like there's almost this impending doom in america in the 70s it feels like everything is about to collapse and this this feeling of annihilation being an inevitability because we our, we, I think we become a bit more aware. We've been talking our Indian burial grounds episode about how in the seventies there's more um, Native American like civil rights movements going on, and so I think we're a bit more aware culturally and publicly about our our very bloody past. Okay, yeah, and I think 
coupled with the civil rights movement that preceded that, uh, which would have been like a reminder of slavery and and that like blood labor that the country was built upon. Like we wouldn't be a rich country if it hadn't been for slavery for so long. Right. And so I think it, it maybe feels um, that this this increase in violence in the 70s is almost it's it's that past coming back to haunt us. It's right. Like America's comeuppance. Yeah. And it's it's us just going through these cycles of violence that seem inescapable. And there's almost a morbid desire to kind of watch the country eat itself in a weird way. Hmm. It just doesn't feel like there's a way to fix it. Do you want to read this quote by Christopher Sherritt? Sure. Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre represents a crucial moment in the history of the horror genre when the form develops a specific relationship to the historical and cultural trend discussed and to a distinct period of discontent in American society. Although Hooper's film has been analyzed incorrectly as being a forerunner of the slasher films of the 1970s, its scope is far broader and more significant. So Henkel, I guess, Kim Henkel wants to counterbalance this more more supernatural idea that there's some bigger force, more ambiguous mythical force that's responsible for the evilness of this time with with uh, more grounded social motivations for the film, maybe more um, like world specific to why, you know, what, what turns someone into a killer and why would we have this family like what happened to them right which is interesting because the answer he eventually comes to when he writes texas chainsaw massacre the next generation is illuminati yeah yeah (laughs) i don't know what happened (laughs) oh my god that's right because he did write that he wrote and directed next generation yep Wow, it's weird that he apparently wanted to do less supernatural and weird for the first one, but then... I guess Illuminati isn't supernatural, it's just conspiratorial. Sure. So maybe, sure, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so Kim Henkel and Toby Hooper come up with the this family of rednecks whose way of life is threatened, and they're uneducated, and they've been laid off because of this revolution in technology and their industry, and their town's falling apart, and they blame it on the modern world and then take this out on teenagers visiting their town. What could be a better representation of the modern world than teenagers? Yeah, we're obsessed with teenagers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's like, what, post-1950s, I think, is when teenagers are a demographic. They get their own culture and right. influence. So there's some really interesting stuff going back to that um, like small town research that was going on around the time of Ed Gein. There's some really interesting stuff that comes out of that, particularly from this guy named Michael Lessie, who wrote a book. I think he was traveling through Wisconsin and like the general Midwest area. He finds that frustration and anxiety set in among this group of already exploited and disenfranchised people by the hands of entrepreneurial capitalism, right? It's working class. And on top of this exploitation of a rural working class, we have the development of East and West Coast cities. This is all starting to sound very familiar, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, this further alienates the middle of the country economically. And this gives us our silent majority, which was coined by Richard Nixon. And that's... That's a group of people that we see as angry and vengeful. And uh, just, yeah, fearful, I think, of the changes around them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, yeah, Nixon said the silent majority would elect him in 68. And Mm -hmm. they did, even though it was like, you know, like we said, civil rights, turbulent (laughs) period. But Nixon, the more conservative uh, candidate, won banking on, yes, this silent majority. Mm -hmm. Was he law and order, too? Is that Reagan? 
They both, both. were. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know who used that as like a tagline. I guess they both. I, I think would have Nixon, but yeah, I think they both would have. Yeah, but this is when we get these non, like these seemingly unfathomable and, and, and nonsensical crimes as it's people acting out in the face of crisis and acting destructively when there doesn't really seem to be any chance for change or improvement and everything is is terrible why bother acting like it's not and i'm Mm. not justifying that but i'm saying these researchers found that that's what was going on when you get shit like ed gein or or violence in rural communities is when you take away that that meaning to their lives and they don't have like there's nothing for them to productively contribute so you get this kind of stuff happening yeah yeah oh and yeah i like this uh the demonstration of this idea is franklin after the hitchhiker cuts himself yes. his, with his hand which always stuck out to me yes you know he he also slashes franklin's arm mm-hmm. uh shortly after that but for me the thing that always stuck out him cutting himself was him cutting himself with i that knife. i loved this because i i was i was reading about these studies and i think what yeah that really resonated with me was the oh my god yeah i think this film is kind of saying that and i think that's why the hitchhiker he cuts himself, and then we have Franklin very purposely wondering, that must really take something to do that. And that guy cut the hell out of himself. You think you could do that to yourself? Like crazy? Yeah, but, you know. It, it takes something, though. I mean, just to do that to yourself like he did? God. And so if you if you kind of look at that, research it's yeah it's because this hitchhiker and his family are part of this group of people who their outlets been taken away right and so that it really has taken something for him to be able to do that to himself it's it's self-destruction yeah yeah that's interesting right yeah yeah yeah. how come i I thought the gun was better oh no no with the new way people put out of jobs the horror in this movie is really derived from American ideology, taboos, our institutions of family, working class, capitalism. But it's we've got all these in this movie perverted versions of those things, like really weird upside down versions of those things. And so our, our social mores are so ingrained that even when our day to day routine is gutted or in this movie, our livelihoods made redundant we still kind of cling to that structure. And I think that that's why this movie's so creepy is because it so recognizes these structures that are very American and then gives us these weird monster versions of them. It's going back to the monster family, right? Yeah. And when so when the Texas Chainsaw Massacre family, the Sawyer family, they're not called that in this, though, they're right? Not. That's just the sequel? That's, yeah, I think that's uh, when they say Drayton Sawyer. Drayton in the, Sawyer. In the sequel, he wins he, his, that, that chili, chili contest. And also what I love about the sequel is that he's uh, up and down that movie. He's complaining about the plight of small business owners. Yes. <laughs> he's yes. always saying it's the so small funny. business owner, they get fucked in the ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, when, when they're kind of all made redundant, they don't have a purpose anymore in this social order they even the family unit like is kind of pointless too because they can't there's no women in their family yeah so in in the eyes of our culture like like we've talked about with the idea of repression it's like 
our ideal family is one that procreates. It's man, mm-hmm. woman, they have kids, but this family doesn't have that. And so their family unit, it gets all weird too. Yeah. And so they cling to these established social, like social norms anyway. And so they still work, quote unquote, and they're still family, but they're just weird deviant versions of these things. So we've got sally at at dinner she's both guest and the meal and <laughs> we it, it looks like a parody of a, a norman rockwell painting like the famous thanksgiving dinner painting it, that's what i'm sure that a, a texas chainsaw version of that exists i'm sure you can buy prints of it online sure. <laughs> but it, it, it's perverting small town hospitality and traditional family values and even think about Drayton who's not named that in this but I'm just gonna call him that the Mm. older brother not the dad yeah he's getting angry at Leatherface destroying the door he's like look what you your brother did did yeah and in moments like where he gets out back out of the truck to turn the light off at the gas station it's like it's like this emphasis on home and electric bills and like just such American little little things I mean not to say that that's not a thing in other countries but it's but yeah he puts Sally in a bag in his truck and goes to leave and then sees Um, that the light is on and turn the lights off and gets back in the truck is like that'll kill you with the electric bill yeah exactly and it's all these little like little markers of things that we're familiar with you mm. know <laughs> and even there's even some attempt to fulfill that ideal family structure right like i said it's a family of all men who can't procreate but leatherface is almost he's the weakest male like they all gang up on him and they're so mean yeah and he, I think, is almost forced into playing the female role. I think that's why we see him with makeup on and he he's cross-dressing at certain parts. And Drayton tells him to get back into the kitchen where he belongs. And we're, we're also probably going to talk about Leatherface, too, on our trans representation episode and uh, those myths about Ed Gein. But I, I totally buy the analysis that he's forced into this kind of role because so much else about the cannibal family is a mockery of traditional American families. Like they work and they have a, a, a white house with a fence. And um, so they, they kind of need like a, a female role. But I also do buy, I, I agree with the criticism that that trend of cross-dressing horror villains is a bummer. And yeah, I think they're both true. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, but the, the absence of a woman, it, leaves this family of men to, to go animalistic and primal. That's There's a trope in a films. Testosterone. I think, yeah, I think in Westerns, that's a big trope too, is the woman is always, they have one woman and she's always the the beacon of civility. And <laughs> so they, they don't have woman. Leatherface isn't quite up to par, I don't think. And <laughs> so the woman, Sally, is a target of their anger. And But there's no, interestingly, there's no sexual threat to Mm -hmm. Sally. I think that's a big, like, that's something that stands out to me about this movie. Um, Film, like, horror films in the 70s, and this is something I don't like about them, is it's, they're very sexually violent. One of the few horror films that does come before this one is Last House on the Left. Yes. And that is a rape revenge story. It is. a graphic. I have seen it once. I don't know that I ever need to see it again. It's it's a cla- like it's it's a good it's terrifying. I found it so genuinely disturbing, mm-hmm. but, but but this movie, it, you get that same gross 70s feeling, but there's no sexual violence in this and I think it's it's just 
sexuality in this world has been so distorted and repressed that I think it, it is manifested in this movie as this phallic chainsaw, right? I don't yeah. think the chainsaw is an accident. It just looks like a giant dick. It is a dick in the second movie. Yeah, the second one gets <laughs> way more into that because sure. Drayton even says explicitly uh, it's either the chainsaw or sex and sex. Well, no one really knows what that is. Like they don't <laughs> know what sex exactly, is. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and there's also that desire to literally consume a woman, right? It's the ultimate act of possession. And it can also be seen as a, a demonstration of the, the end of capitalism, right? This system where we give it, we're, we're okay feeding off of other people to survive metaphorically and literally, mm. you know? But again, in, in the weird like adherence to family structure, Drayton is, is the father figure who's like still trying to comfort her as they're getting ready. For, like, don't worry, Grandpa's he's the, best the best at killing. He's the best It'll at be okay. Him. Right, right. Yeah, those blurred lines between like animal and man and, and violence and all of that feeling so weird. I think you really get that right off the bat with the radio report. And I, I talked about that a little bit, but it's it's the brutality of the world and violence of mankind. And the first you, you said that image of the corpses in the graveyard, these two corpses in an explicit position on top of a tombstone. And it's really it evokes right off the bat. We have sex and death. Yeah, which are the two most powerful repressed urges and like taboos. Right? Yeah, and motivators. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so those things, those forces are so powerful, violence and sex, that they threaten productive work and they threaten rationality. And so it's like these super animalistic things we have to tamp down in order to have a society. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, but in, in the world of Texas Chainsaw, the Sawyer family, they've, up until now, they've been having their cake and eating it too because their work has been so violent up to this point. They've been able to, in their jobs at the slaughterhouse, satisfy those primal violent urges through their work. And mm -hmm. so within our system, that's all cool because that's their labor. They're producing wealth and they are being productive and if they're getting sick pleasure out of it, it doesn't matter because it's still benefiting like whoever owns the slot or whoever's like making the money off of that, right? Yeah. So yeah, the, the hitchhiker shares his experiences working in the slaughterhouse, which disgust everyone. And he even has pictures of him. Yeah. Like he's proud of his work. The so their yeah, their work um has has served two purposes up till now. They're creating products, but they're also directing these violent impulses towards productive labor, in which we, we understand when he he just lights up when he's talking about his old work at the slaughterhouse and how yeah, the the was it the canister, the like uh the, the gun. air gun the air gun is, yeah. is no good yeah yeah find you a person who talks about you the witch the way the hitchhiker talks about killing animals with a hammer oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that's it's the idea of once you give someone a little bit of license to be violent like we give these slaughterhouse workers a, they take out their violent urges on these animals other urges towards violence can start coming up so it's like in war the taboo of killing is pardoned because it's we rationalize it as necessary, kind of like this this torture essentially of animals. We rationalize it as necessary because it's it's productive. It's for an end purpose. And think of war. You hear you, wartime atrocities like torture and um, 
Like civilian. Civilian, murder, yeah. yeah, exactly. Where it's yeah. like you give someone a little bit of license and then that those urges come out. Yeah, and that's why I like uh, hitting things and as an expression of anger is not an, a healthy outlet. Right, exactly, because it's, it's, it's this exact same idea. It's literally like, yeah, the slaughterhouse workers are hitting these animals and giving them these prolonged deaths. That's not like, that's not tamping down these urges. It's just it's giving them license to do it and they're just going to want to keep doing it. The opposite of the purge. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so being unemployed takes away that outlet. So they then direct that at humans. So that's where you get the like humans as animals reading of this, which I think is a, I mean, I, I totally buy that reading. Toby Hooper has said it's a film about meat. Yeah. Like that's a quote of his. And I guess he became a vegetarian for a short while. Yes. After making this movie. Yeah. Pam being captured and put on the meat hook and she has to watch Leatherface mutilate her boyfriend with a chainsaw. And it's like, that's not on like a slaughterhouse. Oh, yeah. Like we do that to animals. And like animals are smart. <laughs> Lastly, they decide on Texas. As their setting, which we talked a little bit about before, but it just, it so clearly evokes our, our past, our, the Wild West and our pioneer origins. And even, you know, we think of pioneers wearing buckskin and leather faces, just wearing human skin. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, like we, we mentioned before, the film kind of implies that the seeming increase in violence of the 1970s and, and seeming collapse of society that it it's inevitable because it's so ingrained in our DNA. Like America is violent. It, like it's always been violent. That's just part of our, our heritage, unfortunately. And this is when we get the importance of Franklin because he, I think is the character who most understands right away that there's something very wrong here. He's the most afraid during the movie too. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he recognizes himself in the hitchhiker. Like when he talks about the knife and realizing like he, like, could he make himself do that? I think he gets that there's such a fine line between him and the hitchhiker mentally, or, you know, like yeah. he could do that. And he sees his own repressed kind of barbaric drive mirrored. I've, I've, uh, in support of that, they both do the same thing when they're frustrated, blowing raspberries. Yeah. Because when they drive away from the hitchhiker, he spends a long time just... And then in, later on in their family home, when Franklin uh, is isolated from everyone else because of his uh, physical yeah. uh, disability. They, I mean, yeah, he's in a wheelchair, so he can't... Limited accessibility in the hardesty yeah, manner. Yeah, and he just sits there blowing raspberries up at the ceiling. Right, right, right. So, and that I think that really emphasizes that these two worlds are very close. Even the houses are close to each other. Did Franklin and Sally, have they met this family before? Right, yeah, Who that's knows? weird, because they used to live in that right, house. Right, yeah, and they're, they're, so their worlds are very close. They're parallel, but they do overlap, and so it's these lines between normal family and degenerate family, and it's it's the lines between our our outwardly facing America, like what we present and what's underneath, Mm -hmm. right? Our our traditional family values and our structures and rules and our civilization versus this other version of America where it's it's brutal and violent and very cruel. And I think Franklin and Leatherface are so key to kind of understanding 
that mirrored relationship in this movie and they're both the odd one out of their respective groups and Mm -hmm. they're both belittled by the other people and franklin also is the only one who's murdered with the chainsaw it's the it's the one murder leatherface does that's not a result of someone walking into his house that's right the other kids he kills sure they're invading his home it's a home invasion movie franklin's just going around in the woods Mm mm-hmm and yeah, we have Drayton Sawyer too talking again about that kind of like moral schizophrenia. He and I, by the way, that's the academic term I'm using. Mm-hmm. I I realize it's probably not a great term, but it's from a. Oh no, I think Toby Hooper used it to describe. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that's like how they've described their mm-hmm. their thesis of this movie. Uh, yeah, Drayton's got this clearly barbaric side, and he he enjoys torturing sally but yeah because he sits there poking her with a broomstick that whole drive and then later on when hitchhiker saying he's just the cook drayton's like i just could i just can't abide by killing i don't enjoy killing yeah you gotta do do it (laughs) yeah and uh there's even this is from the script apparently do you want to read this like quote from the script yeah sure Drayton seems to enjoy torturing Sally, but at the same time to be afraid that the torture will produce some terrible reaction with which he will be unable to cope. Then we have Grandpa, who's the best at killing. He's the best at killing. And he, yeah, he brings to mind, he's the good old days of, of slaughter and bloodshed, right? He's he's pretty much dead now, but we keep him around in reverence. It's this like really creepy respect for Grandpa, and mm-hmm. he's he's... They play it up to Sally like it's an honor to be murdered by Grandpa. They're yeah. like, "Oh, it's it's gonna be awesome!" Like this is, <laughs> and he's he's so good at killing that it's worthwhile to get murdered by him, even when we see he's clearly impotent. Right? Yeah. We cling, we cling so hard to this glorified past. Then at the end, we have Sally escaping, and at this point. In this episode and in the conversation about this movie, Sally represents so much, right? Mm-hmm. Like, depending on on what angle you're looking at this movie at, she could represent the youth of America versus, like, the the older generation, like the traditional, like, grandpa zombie <laughs> generation or uh, a civility as opposed to barbarism or even just woman as opposed to man. But whatever reading that you look at her through, the ending of this is so bleak. <laughs> Uh, she she's seemingly regressed into savagery, and I guess it. I guess in the original script, she's written as crying instead of laughing. But I think crying implies that there's some sense of closure or catharsis or or ending, and that there's maybe room for her to put this behind her and move on. Because that would kind of be like the normal reaction, yeah. like the healthy kind of reaction. Sure. As opposed to laughing. Yeah, and laughter, I think, is it just implies that something's broken and or something has just been irreversibly done to this character. It's mm-hmm. like a mental, like she's snapped. Yeah, like she's covered in blood. She looks crazy. I think it's the only ending you can have to this movie. It's a movie that I think is about a, a society. It's It's the breakdown of society, and it's also about it's society that's spinning its wheels we're stuck in a circle forever. We're always going to do the same thing over and over and over again. We're not going to let go of, of patterns and we're going to stick to these like super ingrained cultural patterns and norms. And yeah. Like you have Leatherface literally spinning around in a circle. literally <laughs> impotently spinning in a circle, swinging his chainsaw at nothing. And I, I think that 
Yeah, that that very famous shot of Leatherface and like one of my favorite shots in film. So good. I think uh, it lends so much credence to the idea that, yeah, this is what this film is kind of trying to say. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's an America that is stuck and is just decaying. And it's an America that's eating itself. It's, yeah, it's so bleak. Yeah. But I love it. <laughs> it's like my favorite horror movie. And yeah. Yeah. I, that was a lot of... Uh, <laughs> analysis I was a lot I'm impressed yeah yeah I hope this was um interesting especially (laughs) if you only watch the kill count and not the podcast yeah for sure podcast is a different vibe yeah it is but uh it's it's a valuable one and one that I'm thankful uh to you for putting in the work I couldn't have done all this research you've been working your ass off this has been a hell of an episode (laughs) I put together yeah and uh, next week, we have another heavily another researched. Another research-heavy episode. Yeah. Yeah, but we're going to have a guest for that one. That's our, our uh, trans representation in horror. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm excited for that one. I'm excited for what our guest has to say about it because she's also a very big horror fan, too. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be great. Uh, we are planning on that coming out on Tuesday as per normal, but if it's a little late like this one, you know, give us some slack. Yeah. They're major episodes with yeah. a lot of research involved, and Chelsea's been working her ass off. Plus, we had WrestleMania on Sunday. As WrestleMania took up a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Monster Palooza this weekend. If you're yes. going to be at Monster Palooza, we'll be there Friday and Saturday. So mm-hmm. see us, say hi. We're not mean. Yeah. <laughs> we're not going to have like a booth. We're like, we're just going to be walking around. Yeah, we'll just around, be walking yeah. around. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. A- again, I just have to thank you and uh, congratulate you on this awesome episode and all oh, this heavy research. You. You yeah, I'm very impressed. <laughs> Thanks. And I think Lucy liked it too. Yeah, cool. Uh, until next week, you can follow Dead Meat on social media at Dead Meat James on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at Carebeck, C-R-E-B-E-C-C on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want merch, deadmeatstore.com. Mm-hmm. And shoot us any comments or feedback at deadmeatpod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Until next week, I'm James. I'm Chelsea. And this has been the Dead Meat Podcast. Mm-hmm.